my son is going to be 10. I played him A Night at the Opera, and uh, he loves it. Like Gets the greatest it. movie ever made. So it's one of my greatest accomplishments as a parent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a valid, mm-hmm. yeah, you can do voice. I mean, he also loves the Chipmunk movies, but that's <laughs> I wish Groucho were around so you could tell him, my son loves The Night of the Opera, and he also loves the Chipmunk movies. <laughs> <laughs> and he would definitely have something to say. I know he would. <laughs> Welcome to Cocktails at Table 7, inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at Table 7. Dana, cocktails at Table 7. What is your cocktail today? Paloma? In a way, it's tequila with Sprite and uh, watermelon kombucha. Wow. So you're trying to both destroy your stomach and fix it. (laughs) At the same time, I'm drinking my tequila with probiotics. All right, cocktailies. We've got got an army of listeners. They're called the cocktailies. The cocktailies. Okay. Let me write that down. Or maybe they're the cockatoos. The cockatoos. (laughs) Yeah. They'll be the cocktaily cockatoos. Well, do we have any uh, uh, special news to share with the cockatoos? For the cockatiels? I think we do. August 18th. What about August 18th? Joe Allen is officially reopening. All right. A little quiet, Yay. subdued, but, but, but happy clapping. Yes, we are taking reservations. That has started. You can reserve at joeallenrestaurant.com. Up to one week in advance. Yes. Or you can call 212-581-581. I'm going to remember 6464. Four, six, four. Yes. Oh, Dana. It's been a while since you've had Ooh, to remember it's been, that. It's been it's it's been a while. Wow. Should we start over? Yes. <laughs> and not maybe not talk about how sweaty we are. I think we can talk about how sweaty we are. Why not? <laughs> okay. It All is right. uh it is the middle of a heat wave in August in New York City. We're going to be sweaty. And we're trying to put together a quality podcast simultaneously. So Sometimes there are challenges, like we have to turn off the AC and we get super, super sweaty. But you guys can't can't hear us sweat. Thank God. <laughs> that would be really weird and sort of gross. <laughs> that is Jason rubbing his face against his microphone. I'm <laughs> uh, brushing up the sweat. <laughs> there we go. Oh, my goodness. I think... I think we've lost it, ladies and gentlemen. Lost it completely. No, it's all good. It's all good. You get this. Th- you know, the third time's always the chart. <laughs> Speaking of Broadway, yes. Oh, who's our guest today? Our guest is the one and only Mr. Austin Pendleton. You don't say. I do say. Well, Austin Pendleton <laughs> is someone you could find on Broadway. That is true. Or on television, or on film, or off Broadway, or in an acting studio, because he is a Renaissance man, and he has been for almost sixty years. 
he didn't want to actually give that number in the interview, but really it's true. He's been kind of a figure and a notable figure in the in the Broadway scene and the acting scene for ages. And um, we were lucky enough to talk to him. He has a million stories. We got about eight of them, <laughs> and um, they were fantastic. We could have talked to him for like a week and a half and had a whole season full of Austin Pendleton episodes. <laughs> we could, and we may again, so we'll see. But uh, just two things to note about this episode. The first is that it was recorded several months ago, so it may seem that we're referencing things that may uh, uh, have been slightly in the past. We had some technical issues, but we got everything fixed. It sounds great, I think. Yeah. And the second part of it is we asked him, Dana asked him about his start as an acting teacher, and we didn't say exactly who it was that uh, requested that he teach. It was Herbert Berghoff himself, co-founder of HB Studios with Uta Hagen, where Austin teaches to this day. Yes. So make your reservation at Joe Allen. Also- Yes. What if I want a La Scala salad? Can I order that? Of course you can order it. Yay! Yay! <laughs> All right. Jonathan Groff will be so happy. So many people will be so happy. Jen Cody will be so happy. Yeah. <laughs> We're satisfying so many of our former guests. And future guests. And future guests. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you haven't been there before, come in and have a La Scala salad. Please do. It's delicious. I'm not going to lie. It's my favorite. So, without further ado, enjoy this episode with Mr. Austin Pendleton. On cocktails at table seven. Thank you. Inside New York's Joe Allen. Boom. Hi there. Hello. Hi, Austin. Hi, Austin. Hi, everybody. So Hi. you were just about to, you had a show that was about to open right when COVID struck. Yeah, uh, called the called the Minutes by Tracy Letts. And now I hear it's going to reopen in a, like about a year from now. Oh, that's okay. great. I think the lockdown happened on the day of the night the first press was coming. And the actual opening was about three nights after that. We've been in previews for a couple of weeks. Because we were thinking, you know, you're someone... That we all know, we know you from the neighborhood, we know you from your work for the last 50 years. And you're someone you had who's. the number, didn't you? <laughs> oh, it's more than that. I got stuff beyond that. Yeah, we can go right. back further. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, okay. But as someone who is always immersed in your work between acting and teaching and directing, I was really curious what it was like to all of a sudden have this break. If you had told me the day before, which was a two-show day, that this would happen, I would have gone, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to go stir-crazy. And, and, and when the lockdown was announced, it was going to be only for a month, you know. Right. Yeah. The moment I heard about the lockdown, I just felt this sigh of relief, <laughs> which has continued <laughs> ever since. <laughs> if anybody had told me this, I would have said, you're out of your mind. I'm virtually addicted to the work, you know. Yeah, And so right within a couple of weeks, I teach at HB Studio. We, we took a Zoom session, so I'm, I teach all the classes on Zoom. And I'm in play readings on Zoom and stuff like that. I love this time. I mean, the fact that it's an event that has caused so much grief. I mean, one hates to purchase one's relaxation by yeah. that. But I'm not in any hurry to get back. The week of learning Zoom was slightly traumatic for some of the faculty, <laughs> uh, including me. But once you get the hang of Zoom, well, I shouldn't speak too arrogantly. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, and of course, you have to do a Zoom update every mm -hmm. month. And if you don't, Zoom starts to totally misbehave. 
How is it for you teaching the classes online? Do you, what's the differences for you, you know, than being in person? From the very first class on Zoom, I thought, well, I'm I'm glad we have this because we can continue classes, but I cannot think of anything more inimical to a scene study class Mm -hmm. than Zoom. But from the first class, it like really started to work. There's kind of actually an immediacy to it. Because if you're really, scenes are always about any scene. Two-character scene is about people trying to reach each other. And in Zoom, that's a literal problem. Mm. <laughs> so it, there's a kind of a crackle to the work. So it brings the stakes up for everybody yeah. right off the bat. That's yeah. actually true, Dana. Yeah. And I'm curious, when you do a scene study class on Zoom for something that was meant for the stage... Yeah. Were your students altering their performance because now they're on a screen? Is it, I, I, think, I, mentioned I it's... think they just kind of instinctively did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there was one scene I remember between two women and one of the women was in Los Angeles and the other was in Madrid and there was an electricity to it. Mm. Yeah, it's been it's interesting. It's been, you know, seclusion and connection all at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm, going to be slightly sad when we go back into the classroom. I said, you're all taking for granted that the other person is six feet, is three feet away from you. On Zoom, you didn't. Mm. They're going to throw things at me and it's going to be awkward. No, (laughs) that's probably only happened six or seven times, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And we'll have a doctor out in the waiting room. (laughs) With the hand sanitizer. And I was in your class for a while, about 20 years ago. I know you ago. were. Yeah. i never do- been the same since. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've had tons and tons and tons and tons of students over the years that you've, uh, yeah. you know, probably been a mentor to. And who was a mentor to you? Um, well, I had the three. I had Herbert and Uda. Uh-huh. At Lincoln Center, I had eight months with Bobby Lewis. So that was very intensive. And he was fond of saying, he, when actors would say, I don't cry well enough and all that. He would say, if crying were acting, my Aunt Rivka would be Dooza. <laughs> <laughs> he was say things like that. And, uh, but, but, but the three of them, they were all brilliant. They all taught essentially the same thing, but they had their own variations on it. They, they, they were profound. What, what were, though? I mean, what, what were sort of the made, was there major distinctions based on who they were as artists that they well, were sort of more formed just by their personalities. Mm. But yeah. you learn, I mean, you learn basically the principles of Stanislavski. Well, we, we all went to school with, for that. So, <laughs> yes, we did. If you want to quiz us, we could go into some detail. On I've that. got some books on my shelf over here. You. Was that something you thought about before he approached you? Or was it like, oh, should I teach? That sounds interesting. I had no idea how to teach. But I thought, well, I'm not going to say no. (laughs) But then I remembered that the thing Uta would always say at the end of a scene to the two people who had done the scene, she would say to them, what can you tell me? And then she would weave her critique out of what they told her. (laughs) So I just started doing, I still say that. At the end of every scene, what can you tell me? And then they yeah. kind of lead you into their experience of doing, and then you'll be able to get specific about what, what you felt. Is, is there a very popular answer to that? Are, are people saying, "Well, I, I wasn't feeling at that time"? Do you yeah, get that yeah, a lot? yeah, yeah. Or, or frankly, you know, and sometimes we get awkward in Uda's class. 
they would say, somebody would say, well, I, I was actually pretty pleased with it. And she would, there would be a slight pause. <laughs> she would go, you were? <laughs> you could see the life go out of the eyes. Uh, I don't know why you would set yourself up like that. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, I don't either. Yeah. You, you were doing that while you were also doing a lot of stage work. And then, of course, you went off and did several films mm-hmm. um, in the late 60s and the early 70s. Yeah. And the 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 people you were working with are mm. kind of in, in, in an insane list of mega stars of all time. You got to work with Jackie Gleason and Groucho Marx. Yeah. Which I can't I, I just can't imagine what that must have been like. Well, first of all, Skidoo is, as you know, it opened to the worst reviews in the history of film <laughs> and almost immediately became a cult film. I mean, it got awful reviews. It got a horrible response. And then within a week or two, students with beards and everything from Columbia <laughs> Film School would approach me on the subway and say, hey, man, you're in Skidoo. <laughs> and I did, have, I did have dinner with Groucho Marx the night before we shot our scene in the rowboat. There was certain lines that my father, who was a very witty man on his own, but he, he had certain jokes he would say, like when, when we would go out to dinner as a family, he would hand the bill to my mother and say, it's outrageous, I wouldn't pay a cent of it yes. if I were you. And uh, things like that. I said to Groucho, we were having dinner on the, on the night before the early morning when we were going to do the final shot in the rowboat. I said, Groucho, I got to tell you, I, you're the cause of an edible trauma that I had. <laughs> and he made some Groucho response to that. And, and then I said, what happened is that is my father was, is, is, it was still I've been a very witty man. There's certain jokes he tells when we go out for dinner and stuff like that, certain remarks he makes. I've always thought we're so brilliant. And then I, I went to a revival house and saw A Night at the Opera. And all those jokes are in the first scene of that they movie. Are. <laughs> they are. Yes. And so oh, this dinner no. scene. And I, I, I realized my father stole all those jokes from you. And Groucho said, how do you know I didn't steal them from your father? Ah. <laughs> now, Dana grew up listening to uh, Fiddler on the Roof. I did. That was uh, one of my... First big shows I ever did myself. And I we were talking about it and I was saying to the guys like I have probably listened to you on that original cast recording at at least a thousand times. (laughs) You know, Hal Prince, who produced it just a few years ago, he finally confessed to me that it almost closed on the road in Detroit. Really? I had not heard that. If, if, if you want a few laps, read the Variety Out-of-Town Review from Detroit. It's one of the worst out-of-town oh my God. From, of, of a musical that Variety ever wrote. And it's, it's accessible. You can find it. Mm-hmm. But in those days, there would be a thing called a gypsy run-through. Mm-hmm. And you'd play, play them in, in your street clothes, and there'd be a piano on stage and no set or anything. And the house would be packed with gypsies, you know. The gypsy run through for gypsy is still the stuff of legend and you'd go to ones that you knew were going to be flops but they had good things in them and people would cheer and it was always a kind of an up kind of thing the gypsy run through of fiddler on the roof laid an egg and there was a little girl in it and she was already a veteran and she went out into the lobby during the intermission of the gypsy run through fiddler 
And she came back and we were about to begin act two. And somebody said, well, what's the word out front? She said, she'd gone and talked to all her little friends and adults. She said, well, the word is, it's no sound of music. <laughs> I thought zero was going to kill her. Right back. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh when we, my God. Then we did the second act. And, it just, and I went out with friends and they were saying, it just doesn't work. Yeah, but she wasn't much of a pro. As, you know, you said she'd been around. She said that to Zero Mustel before the second act starts. <laughs> yeah, right. I, even I would know that as a kid. You don't do that. Well, well no, we were asking her for the. I mean, to uh, be fair to yeah. her, we were asking her for the straight stuff, you know. But to hear it actually confirmed and confirmed by a nine-year-old. Yeah, was, it was. And then so, um, but I went out with friends afterward who had been there, and they said it just doesn't work, Austin. It just. Had it, so did we, it change radically? Well, so we went to Detroit and the reviews there were cautiously respectful, but they were not raves. They said it's in trouble from beginning to end, but it has aspirations and who knows. And then about a week later, the Variety Review hit, which was just it might run for two months simply because of Zero Mustel. Otherwise, there is wow. no It said no one else in it is any good. And they unfortunately name names. <laughs> uh, one, the score is bad. The script is bad. The Robbins choreography is bad. I mean, it was like across the board. People were sobbing in the dressing rooms. I'm speechless. I can't. Just- yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, they were sobbing in the dressing rooms all during the rehearsal that day. And then I got a call from my agent saying, dear. Have you heard about the Variety Review? I said, I haven't heard about anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hear they're going to fire Jerry Robbins. And I said, well, no, Jerry Robbins is the person you call when the show's in trouble. (laughs) Who would would they call? She said, well, dear, I hear that George Abbott is going to come in. I said, George Abbott, that Jew? It's like (laughs) he was a great fixer, but he's not Fiddler on the Roof. You know what I mean? So that night I went, there was a bar across the street in Detroit. I don't know if I I, I do hope it's still there in other people because that bar would get very intense every night after the show. So I went in the bar. The cast was all at the back arranging who was going to hang out with who later that night. (laughs) <laughs> There's no aphrodisiac, aphrodisiac like a musical in trouble out of town. <laughs> <laughs> but there in the front part of the bar, in the darker part of the bar, was Jerry Robbins just standing there with a drink. And I'd already done a show with, with, with Jerry, which was that play, Oh, Dad, Poor Dad, by the recently departed Arthur Coppett, wonderful mass. But anyway, I went up to Jerry, and because we'd already had the other show, maybe... I had the nerve to say to Jerry, he's just standing there alone with a drink. I said, Jerry, what are you going to do? And he said, and I quote, because I wrote it down, 10 things a day. And that's what he did. Every day at rehearsal, he would make endless small adjustments. No huge thing. And about three weeks later, the show was radiant. Jerry was about to be fired. And he just, he just, we'll go to work on the details. That's really that fascinating story. We talk to a lot of people who are in shows that are start off with a lot of promise and they end up being bombs. So they end up on the flop wall. And this is the exact opposite. Mm. Well, well, we did a well, show Fiddler, that was Fiddler was going to have been that. Yeah. So, you know, Joe Allen opened in 65 and I'm curious if you have any memories because you were, you were working constantly in the theater all through the sixties and the, 70s. Do you remember your first time 
going there? Or do you have any memories of spending time there? Oh, I, I've, I've spent time there many times, but I don't remember the first one. I remember just all of a sudden it was part of my life. Mm. So, I mean, actor, movies, film, Broadway, teacher, and now, and director. Playwright. When did, playwright. playwright. Oh, no, I forgot we one. We haven't Play- gotten uh, a playwright. We, can, we only... This is a six part interview. Today is the first part and it covers 1962 to about 72. And then yeah. we'll come back and do five more. It'll be fun. Oh my goodness. So director and playwright, you know, okay. So I was going to say, when did you start directing? How did you, was that a goal? Was that something you kind of. It wasn't of- quite a goal. I, I, I left Fiddler on the Roof at the end of my contract. It opened on Broadway September 22nd night. 1964, and our contracts were up in August of 1965. So Hal Prince went around, everybody said, are you going to renew? And he came like in the early spring around everybody and said that. And I said, well, I, I've made a commitment. I've been home on, on our dark night on a Sunday night. And, and my mom, who was, had been a professional actress before she married my dad, she then had become very involved with the community theater there. And she was acting, as a matter of fact, in Look Homeward Angel, in the part that Joe Van Fleet had played on Broadway. So I went out to see that, and there was the party afterward. And, and they said to me at the party, hey, in the fall, after you're through Fiddler on the Roof, um, we're doing the class menagerie. Would you like to direct your mother in it? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And I said, yeah. So a couple of weeks after that, Hal comes to me and says, so are, are you going to want to renew? And I said, I've been asked to go direct my mother in Warren, <laughs> Ohio. He said, okay, I'm not going to be the person who gets in the way of that. <laughs> I'm going to be known as the person who gets in the way of that. That's great. And, That's and, all- uh, so he said, you can, you can go out and, and, and do that, and I'll put your understudy on, who was no less than Leonard Fry. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, so it was in good hands. And then... I'll, I'll arrange with Leonard that after you come back from your Ohio engagement, that you can rejoin the cast. That was how generous Hal was. That's really, but, that's but he really said, cool. once you come back, you've got to sign for another year. <laughs> and I said, well, and I mean, Fiddler on the Roof was a very comfortable show to be in. So I wandered the streets for weeks trying to figure out what to do. I typed him a letter saying, what's a beautiful offer, but I think I'm going to when I come back from Ohio, I think I'd like to just be on my own, look for something else. And thank you for your kind, kind offer and all that, all of which I meant. And I took it to his office building on a Sunday morning and slipped it under the door of his office because I was so afraid to confront him directly, but he was cool about it. So I went out and directed my mom in the glass menagerie and it was a hit. (laughs) And I thought, Hmm. Meanwhile, this was a couple of years after I was in the Lincoln Center training program, which overlapped with Oh Dad, Poor Dad and anticipated Fiddler on the Roof. In the Lincoln Center tra- training program, one day, Bobby Lewis in an acting class, I had a scene from Hamlet he'd assigned. And there was something I did. He said, there's, there's a directorial sense in that moment. Mm. He said in front of the whole class, you should keep being an actor, but you should also think about directing. And then Bobby, after that, was teaching at the Yale Drama School, as was Nico Sakharopoulos, who the guy who put founded, essentially, the, uh, the Williamstown Theater Festival. Mm-hmm. And I've been an apprentice there for two years and then non-equity company and then in the equity company. So Nico's 
came to me and said, we got to talk about the directing thing. I said, what, what directing thing? Bobby tells me that you could maybe direct. Why don't you direct a show this summer? So I did, and it was a hit. And then three years later, I came back and directed a Chekhov play, and that was a hit. And the Chekhov one just suddenly opened up all these offers, including a Broadway show by Gretchen Cryer, Nancy Porter, and a whole lot of regional offers like at Long Wharf. And so all that came from a... Two things from a from a remark by Bobby Lewis, and then from the good experience I had directing the class menagerie. With so, mom. so then it was good. So you and your mom got along while you were directing her. <laughs> Not exactly, <laughs> but, but, I mean, but but I've 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 handled much worse. <laughs> and 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 she um she was she was she was um well she also directed at this community theater and and my wife and I acted a few years later. The company got equity waivers. We acted in her production of The Seagull, and 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 my dad was in that too. He oh was wow! That's, that's that's fantastic. That's so lovely. Yeah, yeah, and but but she she was a as a director she was famously difficult, and and every time she would direct a show I would go out there to see it and there would be a party afterward and and several members of the cast would privately each come to me and say with all due respect Austin I'm never going to work with your mother again because <laughs> she, she 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 would insult you. I mean, oh it was God. like, and, and, and people would say, how can you take it? How could you, how could you stand up to Otto Preminger and Jerry Robbins? I'd say, they're not as rough as my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and the next year she would, she would direct another show. I would go out and watch it. There'd be a party. The same actor, the same actors were in it who had said, I'm never going to work with your mommy. And they'd say the same thing. They'd take it's like Groundhog and, Day. It went on annually. It was like a ritual. So funny. So she was a slight. She wasn't as temperamental as an actress as she was as a director. Mm. But but she would you know she put up a fight, and she said you she'll say things like you can't be serious when I would give her, and the <laughs> and and in part part of the deal of a community theater is that rehearsals are in the evening, so the community is invited to come out and watch the rehearsals, and they never do, of course. I mean, who cares? But those rehearsals were full. <laughs> Because they wanted to watch they the show. Cool. <laughs> they wanted to watch. Yeah, right. They so I guess we, uh, I would assume then when you get a job like The Little Foxes with Liz Taylor and uh, yeah. Maureen Stapleton, it's not as intimidating as it might be otherwise since you've already... You know, well, I, I shared all that. I shared all that with them. I said, I don't care what you do <laughs> or anybody else. Do that, what know? was that like working on that I'm play a with his old veteran in this? Yes. What? No, I said, what was it like working with those those two actresses in The Little Foxes? Oh, marvelous. Well, but they were in two very different positions in their stage life. I mean, of course, I, I'd known Maureen for years. I never worked with her. But she, I'll tell you a story about Maureen. It's very interesting in it. She, they were great. Elizabeth was like totally open and generous. And the, the reason I had no trouble imagining her doing it was I realized that a lot of her greatest film work is in films adapted from great play. So at least she knows how to breathe the air of that kind of material. I mean, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, for God's sake? So, and suddenly left summer and cat on a hot tin roof and all that. That kind of playwriting. Yeah. And, she, and, and so I, I never had any doubt about her. And then um, once we got into rehearsal, she was generosity itself. And then after after a few months with that show, when the replacements started to come in, when when we were going to take it on tour and then ultimately to London, 
and she adapted to the replacements. Now, there was no shred of that in her experience. In films, you don't have replacements halfway through the the engagement. She and she took them in. She adjusted her performance to them. And without me even having to talk to her about it. Now, Maureen, well, first of all, Maureen was a whole lot of fun. And she, Elizabeth, just hit it off. And so uh, then there's the big scene that the character Maureen played has at the beginning of the third act where Bertie, the character Bertie, is with the people she loves and Regina isn't there and all that. And Bertie just opens up that she's a drinker and, and, and that she hates her son and she hates, you know. And, and um, that scene is almost always staged. Everybody is seated. And Maureen said, and it's a great scene. It's a great showcase scene for whoever's playing Bertie. It's the big scene, you know. And Maureen said, you know what? I'm a, I, I'm a drunk. It, it, that's not the way it happens. When a drunk starts to confess, the, the confessing is so anxiety producing, um, even though she's confessing something everybody already knows, that a drunk doesn't sit still. Mm. I want to mm. move all around. I said, okay, you stage it. So she staged it and she moved all around and she staged it in one hour long rehearsal and it never changed. It was breathtaking. It was breath. It was, and I can say this objectively because I didn't direct it. It was the best directed version of that scene I've ever seen, um, in, including that the wonderful film that was made. They all sit in most productions of that play. Mm. And then um, Walter Kerr, who's a critic I very, very much admire. He hated this production of Little Foxes. Mm. And he wrote, he said, even Maureen Stapleton, of course she triumphs, but she has to overcome the most awkward, over-fussy staging of her big scene (laughs) that I've ever seen. But she triumphs anyway. And I she be, she I, overcame I, your terrible I direction. Say, I staged that scene. <laughs> she staged it, Walter. If you hung around more drunks, you would know that's brilliant. <laughs> you know. Uh, and and then Maureen and Lillian Hillman had this long-standing, hilarious friendship, which they would insult each other all the time. They just insulted each other constantly in rehearsals and everything. And Lillian was fun. Now, I'd been 14 years earlier in the Mike Nichols production of The Little Foxes with Anne Bancroft and, and one of those great casts that, that he would always put together, Mike. Uh, I mean, Margaret Layton was Bertie. George C. Scott was in it. E.G. Marshall was in it. Bea Richards was in it. Dustin Hoffman was supposed to be in it. They had just made The Graduate. But, but Dustin kept kind of dragging his feet about it. So Mike got mad and said to the producer, find me somebody else. Find me another young, eccentric New York character actor. I was in the New York Times that day because I'd won a Derwent Award for a production that had opened and closed six months earlier, directed by Alan Arkin called Hale Scrodick. And my picture was, oh, the producer was looking at that page. <laughs> he said, Austin Pendleton, hire him. So two months go by, I was out at ACT in San Francisco. My agent calls and says, dear, this fall, would you like to be in Mike Nichols' production of The Little Fox? I said, yes, but <laughs> in that part, I mean, it's, the, it's the only young guy part in the play. Yes, that's, yes. I said, well, okay, fine. Let's <laughs> know what he's doing. This is, I, I can't imagine myself in that part, but yes, I'd love to. Of course, I'd love to. So we, sh- we showed up a few months later to start rehearsing it. We were reading the play around the table like they do, you know. At the beginning of the lunch break, the second day of that, Mike calls me over and says, hey, you know something? You're totally miscast. <laughs> <laughs> 
no. And I, and I said, well, I, I had wondered about that. He said, but don't worry. He said, we'll make an adventure out of it. And I had a big scene in the play with E.G. Marshall and got to the point where every morning, the whole morning rehearsal was just me and E.G. Marshall. And then there was a lunch break. And only after lunch did Anne Bancroft and George C. Scott and Bea Richards and Margaret Layton and all those people come in. It got embarrassing. Finally, we did a run through on the stage and Mike gave long notes, all of them, of course, totally, totally brilliant, but no notes to me. And I, like an idiot, thought, well, I guess Annie and George and, and Maggie are still figuring it out, but I appear to have, you know, landed. <laughs> so like an idiot, I walked up to Mike and I said, so Mike, you didn't give any notes. I guess you're pleased with all the work we've been doing. He said, how can I give notes on a performance that is totally wrong from beginning to end? Oh, gosh. <laughs> but but he was right. He was right. I mean, he had tried everything. Oh, jeez. I still don't understand my behavior in that rehearsal process. But I just kept doing the same things no matter what. So he said, I worked with you. I've worked with you. And you just don't change. And, and so I said, OK. And so I walked into the dressing room area. And there was Anne Bancroft. And she said, you don't look well. <laughs> and I, I told her, she said, oh, Mike. You know, and and um, so I went home and I went out that night with my friend. I got so drunk. I was crawling across the floor of the bar because I thought I'll come in tomorrow. I'll be ushered into a meeting with Mike and he will say, I'm sorry, it's all my fault. I ca I cast it without thinking. I it, I don't, you know, I, I'm sure we'll work again sometime, but I think we have to let you go. I was all prepared. I came in the next morning, wildly hungover. And that's it. But then Anne Bancroft comes up to me backstage and says, I thought about what you told me last night. I figured out what he doesn't like. I said, what? I think he doesn't like anything. She said, no, the thing that makes it look miscast is you walking the wrong way. Huh. I said, what do you mean? And she, she was funny. You know, she, was, she said, well, Austin, people have always told you that you're smart. I have no idea why, but they have told you that <laughs> all, all, all the time. So, Austin, when you cross, the, when you walk in life and when you cross the stage, you lead with your head because people have been told since they were kids that they're strong. They just lead with their head. Uh -huh. Leo is stupid. The only thing Leo's proud of in his life is his relationship with a person referred to as that woman in Mobile. And Leo is so stupid, he doesn't even realize she's a prostitute. But he's very proud of that relationship. So go out on stage today and don't think about anything else. Just lead with your crotch. So I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. So I went out and just started leading with, with my crotch. And Mike said, that's it. <laughs> and so Annie saved my job in that production. Because that would have been a very public show to be fired from. Yeah. yeah. And, and you ended up doing... Catch-22 with him very shortly after. Yeah, that. yeah. And then that began a really great relationship between whether we would hang out sometimes. In, in fact, we had a three-hour lunch with him 44 years later, just him and me down in the village, 2011, because he'd just come to see the production I directed of Three Sisters at, at Classic Stage Company. Mm -hmm. He was a big fan of that. So we that was the occasion for a long lunch. And we talked about like everything. We gossiped about everybody we knew and all that. It was terrific. And um, he talked about his concerns for his health too. It was a wonderful lunch. 
It was by far the longest time we ever had alone together. And then as we were leaving the restaurant, he said, we have to do this again. And I, I said, absolutely. And then he said, because we have to talk about Catch-22. He was still obsessed with what he regarded as the... And so we talked about it, but it never happened because not long after that, he died. And I really regret that I would have told him Catch-22 was not well-received when it came out. It was, in a way, his first flop, either on stage or screen. He never got over it. But I would have told him, Mike, every generation since that movie came out, that movie is more and more literally revered. Mm. And like 30 years after it was made, people start coming up to me and saying, hey, man, you and Catch-22. And Orson Wells tried to destroy that movie. I mean, he put his heart and soul into it. He would redirect all the scenes just before they were shot. Now, Orson, when he was not on set, like when we all had to sit in, in, in those high chairs, you know, in the desert in Mexico, while they're setting up the lights and everything, Orson was like enchanting, like throwing fish to a seal. We would, we, we would mention <laughs> the name of a film director, either living or dead, and, and he would expound. His favorites were like Howard Hawks and all those. And he was, he was you know, charmingly self-deprecating in a way that fooled no one. We, uh, he talked about the film director Renoir, you know, and he would say, I hear Renoir does not like my films, but if I were Renoir, I wouldn't like my films either. And, I mean, this fooled no one. But I don't even know what that means. Yeah, we, <laughs> because Renoir's films are so much more pure than mine. Oh, oh, oh. No, I mean, yeah, I'm bullshit, bullshit. I loved Orson Welles as talk show guest, the greatest yeah. talk show guest. <laughs> oh, There's ever, a, ever. Oh, and, and then there, I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's so great. He would sit in for Mike Douglas. And he has Andy Kaufman on. Yes. And Orson loved Taxi. He as as did I growing up. And it's the weirdest thing, and it only could have happened in the eighties. Yeah, totally. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit to um, something I found out about on IMDb called You're Going to Love It Here. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me about that? It was by Bruce Paltrow, he who created Saint Elsewhere and all those things. And he's met, was married to Blythe Danner. And we all got to know each other at Williamstown. And I, I directed Blythe and acted with her up there. And I got to know her and therefore Bruce quite well. So he said to me, when, I think I'm going to write a sitcom for you. I said, well, you'll get no argument from me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, then he came and said, would you mind acting with Ethel Merman? I said, I would crawl through broken glass to act with Ethel Merman. I'd totally idolize her. As a matter of fact, I knew her, I know her son. He had been a stage manager at ACT. So, yeah, I got, and she's inspired casting. for. And then the other, the other of the leading players was uh, this little kid named Chris Barnes, who had had a triumph the year before in a movie called The Bad News Bears. He was at this point like eight years old or seven years old. So we rehearsed in New York for about a week, the pilot. And Chris Barnes and Ethel Merman, <laughs> two of the sweetest people in the world I, I, I've ever worked with, actually. But they loathed each other. Really? Oh, wow. <laughs> this is perfect. Ethel would, go, <laughs> Ethel would walk around the set saying, when is the kid going to deliver? 
And, and, oh, and Chris, man. Chris, who had this angelic face, would stare at her with undisguised contempt. And it, it was really, there was, and, and Bruce is trying to negotiate all this. And Ethel would say, would say to me, do you believe this kid? And I, I would say, well, actually, I, I think he's pretty talented. He's probably just scared, you know. He's not scared. He's, you know. <laughs> and finally, um, finally, we had our final rehearsal and that night was going to be the taping. So everybody, everybody went out for dinner. And Chris and I were, we, we stayed behind. They were going to bring us food. And we just sort of picked, there was a piano and we were picking away on the piano. I said, Chris, you know, when this is over, because we were certain we were going to be picked up. I said, I'm going to play you this album of show called Gypsy. He said, what's that? I said, that's a musical and Ethel's acting and you can even hear it on the album. Like Ethel gave a brilliant acting performance in that musical and Chris said, and I'll try to reduce, reproduce the line. No, please, you could say whatever he said. He, he, you have no, to. No, but I, I'll try to, I'll try to reproduce the line reading or the. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Chris, little seven-year-old toehead, said Ethel. <laughs> stop trying! Stop trying to convince me over with this bullshit. You know, was, <laughs> they hated each other. The plot was that I had, I was a bachelor, carefree bachelor in New York. My brother and sister-in-law have just been put in jail for income tax evasion. And our mother is Ethel Merman, who's a musical comedy star. She won't take the kid because she's about to go on a tour. So I have to take over the kid who's Chris Barnes. Her attorney comes and says, you've got to take this kid because she can't take the kid on the road with her. And if you don't take any, you'll be turned over to some foster parents and they'll crucify your mother. And I said, there's not a carpenter alive in the world who could drive a nail through my mother's hand. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a classic scene in where Ethel is playing cards with the kids and accusing them of cheating. (laughs) And she's in her fur coat and everything. This sounds really funny. Oh, it's brilliant. but But the studio didn't like Ethel Merman. Or some executive at the studio. That's the way it is with TV. It's just I so mean, dumb because it's obviously a show about Ethel Merman and kids. Yeah. And so how are you not going to like Ethel Merman when that's what the show is? Yeah. It's like and that. That's that card game between Chris Barnes and all his little friends and her. They're playing gin rummy or something. Yeah. And she fleeces them for every penny that I love. It, it <laughs> sounds really funny. She doesn't trust them. She thinks they're cheating. It's funny. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so Bruce Paltrow kept calling um, Chris Barnes Strasburg. Now, <laughs> now if Strasburg will just according to IMDb, you've done 150 films and television appearances. I would assume that the two you get most often are the Muppet movie and my cousin Vinny. Yeah. And there's a third one, um, which is Finding Nemo. No, number one is my cousin Vinny and then Finding um, Nemo. Yes. And I, I really didn't want to do my cousin when he practically ended my film career. I did it because the director got me drunk, who was an old friend of mine, got me drunk one night and I agreed to do it. Because when I was a kid, I stuttered. Even when you get over it, you, get, you, you train yourself out of it, which is quite a process. And the training an actor gets really helps that. The fear of a stutter is once you begin to start again, it's going to come back and overwhelm you. 
Yeah. Virtually a primal physical fear. And I thought, I do not want to do this part. And Jonathan Lynn, who is still a a very great comedy director, too. Yeah. He um, he took me to a Greek restaurant here in New York, two bottles of Ritzina and I was in, you know. (laughs) Uh, But and it's a wonderful movie. I'm proud to be in the movie. Yes, I understand what you're saying. I wish I had made it. Did he know that about? You had struggled well, with that? Thought, oh. And then he told me, oh, I see. To, you know, I had to fight uh, 20th Century Fox to hire you. And of course, I, who <laughs> wish I hadn't been in the movie, said, you had to fight to get me that part? <laughs> <laughs> then I did a flock of films maybe two years later of mm-hmm. people I knew in with people I knew in the business who, like a wonderful one with Whoopi Goldberg called The Associate, mm-hmm. and all of the succeeding films by Jonathan Lynn. And and Barbara Streisand put me in another film. Well, one of my my one of my favorites that I think I probably saw on VHS the first time was Hello Again. Oh yeah, that was a nightmare. Yeah. Oh, was, oh, was it? Oh no. It was just very tense. And I was pleased that it turned out so well. <laughs> well, we we loved it. I we didn't feel the tension. <laughs> but you often hear that, particularly comedies, the, the set is hard. I mean, my cousin Minnie. Was hard, and and not just because of my particular <laughs> problems with it, but the a lot of again a lot of wonderful people, but it was very tense, hmm. and to the point where sometimes when somebody comes back from shooting a comedy film, and I say how was oh we had a wonderful time, I always know the comedy is going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> how comedy has another one that was really hard. Well, it was wonderful in terms of the way we all really bonded. But the shooting of the scenes was like, you could tear your hair out, was What's Up, Doc? Uh, sure. Which, of course, is a brilliant film. That's so funny. And the, and such you, a charming and, But Peter, very, P- Peter Bogdanovich, very proud, he wanted it like the group scenes played at the speed of those old Howard Hawks comedies, yeah. which is exactly the way to do the film. But he would do it and there wouldn't be any close-ups in the scenes. And they would go on for a long, like six or seven minutes. Everybody at that table was so terrified that they were going to, including me, they were going to be the one that would that would blow a line. Yeah, sure. And we would do it at top speed. And Peter would, at the end, Peter would say, cut. And then he'd say, well, it's got to go faster than that. And we would all go, oh, my God. And I, I remember I was staying at the Sunset Marquee and I would go home and I and literally crawl from the door to the bed. But on the other hand, between scenes, when they were setting up the lights for the next scene, we would hang out, all of us, and have these intense conversations. It was the early 70s. And there were all these new kinds of treatments and everything for yeah. people and all that. And we would talk about our lives. That was fantastic, probably more than any movie I've ever been in. Those group sessions, just us all talking to each other. And then we would go back and do these scenes, which would reduce us all to rubble. <laughs> my, my favorite uh, obscure, non-obscure scene that you have is from Two Days in the Valley. Oh, that is, one. That was which, literally filmed at three in the morning. I believe <laughs> it. Park in Studio City. <laughs> To yeah. the point where I'd forgotten I was in it. it it's it it is only just a two minute scene, but I think it's just I love that. I love yeah, that. yeah it's a great, fun, very memorable, just the funniest little scene. Yeah, and that was Shirley's Theron's first big um and she was also in trial and error. And we weren't ever in the same scenes together, uh, even in trial and error. But she was so warm and so remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I feel like we could probably 
talk to you for the rest of the day into tomorrow. We didn't get we to could, the plays. I wanted give to talk you to you 14... about Uncle Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about uh, Booth. We'll 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 have another one. There, I will I, I will leave you with one quote that was said about Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob became kind of a cult play when it played in New York, and one of its big fans was Jerome Robbins, who he would and he would bring people to it. One of those was a French playwright that he knew, famous French playwright who also did a lot of commissions of translations. He translated Tom Stuppard's Arcadia for the Comédie Française and so mm. forth. Jean-Marie Besset is was his name. Is his name. So he wrote me at HP Studio where I teach and said, "I'd like to translate your play for free into French." And um, I was going to go see it. And, and I then it coincided with something I had to do at Steppenwolf. So I didn't go to Paris to see it, but they sent me a tape. And then, then Jean-Marie, the, uh, the translator, about three months after the run, he came and we hung out in New York, had a cup of coffee. He said, I got to tell you a comment that was made in one of the talkbacks. And you have to imagine this being said in French. I said, what was it? She, she stood up and said, this play is the work of Satan. <laughs> And I thought, I said, this is a fantasy I never even knew I had. <laughs> I, can, I can rest now. I love oh it. Oh, my goodness. That goes in front of the theater. The next time we have to have that is the quota. Yes. So what we always do at the end of these interviews is we do a version of the James Lipton. Uh, I didn't mean to say it in French. The James <laughs> Lipton Proust questionnaire that he would end the actor studio. But we do a little bit of a Joe Allen spin on it as well. So it's okay. eight quick questions. First answer off the top of your head. Dana. All right. What's your drink at Joe's? Uh, tequila Gimlet. Mm. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? None. <laughs> Do you prefer pre-theater or post-theater? Oh, oh, after. Oh, God, I, 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 I stay away from all that before the show. What live performance have you seen that has floored you the most? And, well, several by Kim Stanley. Oh. She introduced... I'd heard it as an abstract word, and certainly all all fine actors really have that. But that thing called immediacy, mm-hmm. where it actually is happening at this moment in time and no other. And then I'd go see her again, and it would be immediate again, even though she was doing pretty much the same thing. And I got to know her a tiny bit, just a tiny bit. I mean, she was very open about all that and everything. Uh, Kim Stanley. What's your favorite dish at Joe Allen? Past or present? Oh, there's some kind of meat that they serve. That the liver, liver? the calves That's liver, probably yes, the calves yes, liver, calves yes, liver. Yes, yeah, it's a very popular one, Austin. That oh, cheeseburger, it's superb. Yeah. Are you hot fudge pudding cake or banana cream pie? Now you have asked the only unanswerable question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, I can't. I know. Both of them. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. And what's your favorite curse word? Fuck. Yeah. Classic. Finally, what is the one word you would pick to describe how you feel about Joe Allen, the establishment? Heaven. Mm. That's yeah. a great answer. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the first. That's the first time we've heard heaven, and I that's love it. That's the first it. time we got that. <laughs> heaven from Satan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you've got to take that in the context. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Well, I mean, what can I say? Thank you so much for talking to us. It's really a pleasure to see you. We like to end the show with a toast. So if you'd like to raise your glass to good raise your glass to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at table seven. Cheers. 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 Okay. Let me before you go, I have to ask you a question. Have you listened to
Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.